Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, be found on, pages, on page 1021 in your pew Bible. 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Good morning, everyone. Hey, my name is Mark, and I am one of the pastors here, and I'm really glad to see everyone's face this morning. Happy New Year. And um, let's, uh, let's pray together before we get started. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, who is sufficient for these things? The answer is no one. So we ask for grace. We ask for your power. We ask for your spirit's work in our lives and hearts. We ask for you to make our hearts the kind of place that receives your word and keeps it where it can grow, where it can be nourished, where it isn't plucked up or blown away. Make our hearts the kind of hearts that are good soil, I ask. Fill us with faith this morning, faith to work, faith to love, faith to um, eat the Lord's Supper at the end, faith to parent, faith to serve our kids, faith to serve the church, faith to serve our community, faith to, to do the, uh, the job and the calling that you've given us. Would you fill us and intensify, increase and fortify and make it solid, our faith in our hearts this morning? Would you do that? Would you do that through the power of your Holy Spirit and through your word? We submit our lives and our hearts and our works, our actions, our money, every possession. We submit it all. We lay it all down at the feet of Jesus. Every notion that we have, every idea about what we think we need or who we think we are, or what we think we can do to make ourselves be okay and be full and flourishing, all those notions we lay at your feet. You tell us, please, what we need and where to go and fill us with uh, the, the grace empowering uh, obedience to follow you this morning I ask in the name of Jesus amen this, this, uh, this past September I preached four, four sermons on what I, would, what I called the big rocks or the four main links in the chain of our mission statement. 
Okay, our mission is to cultivate communities of transformed disciples of Jesus Christ who live for the glory of God. And there are certain components, there are certain features, there are certain dynamics that must be present for that to happen, for that to happen. And those features, as we talk about them, are cultivation, communion, transformation, and vocation. Cultivation is the work we want to do. Communion is who we're working with. Transformation is the work in your life that only God can do. And vocation is what it looks like to live it out in our lives in every aspect of our calling as believers, as believers. If you want another taxonomy, communion is our relationships, cultivation is our work, transformation is our desire, and vocation is our calling. Our calling. And as we look into 2024 prayerfully, we've identified three kind of goals for us as a church. And I, I shared them in the most recent newsletter. These, these aren't our only goals for our church, but they represent some broad, overarching commitments that are at the front and center for our elders. Two of those goals are to cultivate leaders in the church and to continue to lay down and establish the foundations of what God's doing here. We're working on concrete initiatives to formalize those goals and you'll hear more about what that means in the weeks and months to come. But today I want to highlight a third goal that's in that, uh, a third goal related to this year, especially and especially this series, and that is to strengthen communion. Strengthen communion. The reason that we named the series Communion is not because we want to give a theological lecture on the Lord's Supper. Okay? That's not what we're going to be talking about over the next 13 weeks. It's because we want the truths of the scripture to transform us into more mature believers who fear God and don't fear anything else that's scary. We wanted our sermon series to feed explicitly, right? Explicitly into one of those four features of our mission as a church. That's why we're preaching through the letters of John. The letters of John are deeply pastoral. They are deeply personal and they are deeply relational. These letters talk about what communion with God looks like and what communion with one another looks like. Things like true fellowship, things like deep and meaningful friendship, things like the reality of the family and communion with other believers come from God. They come from God. You see, he exists in fellowship constantly with himself. In the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we need to be in communion with him if we want deep and abiding fellowship with one another. And the letters of John are going to give us a unique opportunity to do that. The letters of John will give instructions to us on how to protect fellowship and how to fight against broken or hollow or empty or fake versions of fellowship. We're going to talk a lot about walking in the light, about confessing sin, about self-deception, about honesty and integrity in relationships. We're going to talk about forgiveness and loving one another. We'll also examine what threatens fellowship, what threats 
exist that seek to ruin your fellowship or sabotage your fellowship with God and seek to poison and divide fellowship inside the body of Christ. That's where we'll be for the next 13 weeks or so. And I'm really excited about that. I'm thrilled they're walking through these letters as a church family. So we're beginning the year, we're beginning the year with a sermon series that's aimed directly at our relationships. We want to kick off 2024, not with hype, but humility. We want to begin the year not with fanfare, but faithfulness. We want to set a course for our church, not with trendy slogans, but with increased trust in our Savior and our God, and with increased faith and strengthened communion with God first. And if we do that with passion and devotion and commitment, we'll see strengthened relationships with one another as the natural consequences of deep communion with God. May the, may the fruit of our labors that during this series be restored relationships and deepening relationships. As one author says, the spirituality of this letter is ecclesial, is ecclesial. It means that the spirituality of this letter is for the assembly. It's for us. It's for the church. It's for our fellowship. And that word fellowship is in our name as a church, right? And the essence of communion is in our mission statement. Listen to these two different definitions of the word for fellowship as it's used in the scriptures. Quote, the word fellowship, koinonia, is not particularly common in the New Testament and never occurs in the Gospels. But the thing denoted by the word, sharing, the experiencing of a common yet transcendent bond, especially the bond of trust in the crucified and resurrected Christ, is ubiquitous. It's everywhere in the New Testament, whether it's a state of relationship between humans and God or a state of relationship between or among humans themselves. The fellowship of God with us and us with one another is a central function and application that John seeks to pass along to his readers. Here's another way to say it from John Stott. Fellowship is a specifically Christian word and denotes that common participation in the grace of God, the salvation of Christ and the indwelling spirit, which is the spiritual birthright of every single believer. It is our common possession of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which makes us one. So, John could not have written that you may also have fellowship with us without adding, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Since our fellowship with each other arises and depends on our fellowship with God, end quote. Let me say, let me say also what we mean when we use the word community. In a, well, what we mean when we use that word, we don't mean online community. We don't mean community of affinity. What we mean when we talk about community is fellowship with God and fellowship with one another, what we all share together. What we mean by the word communion is communion with the triune God and communion with one another. And that's what John is talking about. As one author says, John writes then to promote unity and harmony 
what the Apostles' Creed calls the communion of the saints, both with God and with one another. John lays out his purpose in, in his letter for us. And you might, notice, you might notice in other places in the scriptures that John is a fan of naming his purpose whenever he writes. He does it in his gospel and he does it in the book of Revelation. The apostle, Paul, or the apostle John is always explicit in his purpose. In the gospel, he says he's writing so that we would believe, believe that Jesus is the Messiah, believe that Jesus is the Christ. And then later in 1 John, in chapter 5.13, he says, I write these things to you who believe. I write these things to you who believe already so that you may know that you have eternal life. So in the gospel, he writes that we would believe. And in this letter, he writes that to those who do believe so that they would have full and deep and abiding and powerful assurance Assurance. We see today that John is very helpful in laying out his goals. And there are two purpose statements even in this short uh, section of scripture that we have today. The first one is that you, that you may have fellowship with us. And the second is so that our joy may be complete. And because those are his purposes, they're what Jay Adams calls his telic purpose of the section, right? The tell us the, the meaning, the, the direction and the end of where he's headed. We want to know what he's talking about. What does he mean by this kind of fellowship? What does he mean by this type of joy, this specific reality of joy that he's naming in the scriptures? And to do that today, we're going to talk about how Christ is the life that was from the beginning. Christ is that life. We're going to talk about how we share fellowship with the triune God. We're gonna talk about how we share fellowship with one another and how those, like that, that, that progression, those three realities make true, full, lasting joy accessible to the believer. One, two, and three together issue forth joy for the believers. So number one, Christ is the life that was from the beginning. Verse one begins with what one author calls the Christological stamp that John is so known for. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon, and then we touched with our own hands concerning the word of life. John says, we've seen it. We've seen it. It's the word of life. It's eternal life. And it was with the Father. And then he was with us. And that's what we're talking about. As one commentator says, Jesus Christ is the slightly veiled primary subject of this section of scripture. This we have to grasp. The incarnation of the God-man, Christ, Jesus Christ, changes everything. When eternal life became manifest, became skin and blood, that changes everything, changes the game. If God, who no one can see, makes himself seeable, that changes everything. This is a declaration unmistakably that Jesus Christ is the incarnate son of God who became a seeable, hearable, touchable person that's what John's saying. That's what he's claiming as the foundation and the first step of all the rest of his arguments throughout his letter. John's claiming eyewitness status here. 
He's claiming eyewitness status. In, in the book of Micah, chapter five, verse two, it says, but you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. This is the same kind of phrase that we have here. John sets the stage from the landscape of eternity. That's where he starts. He lays out the scenery by first turning our attention to the transcendent. That phrase, from the beginning, is a reference to the God of Israel. And yet, the author goes on to explain to us that the transcendent became imminent became imminent. This is why he gets into the nitty gritty, right? John says the transcendent word of life, eternal life manifested in such a way that I heard him with my ears, my real like flesh ears. What you see here, I saw him, I touched him. And he says, he says we, because John's humble and he's only one member of the apostolic witness that Christ commissioned to take his message to the earth, more per- precisely, his message and his lordship to the whole earth. Jesus Jesus is the life that's talked about in these verses and John And John reminds us of at least a couple things. He reminds us that Jesus is God and Jesus is the God-man in this instance. That's the mystery of the incarnation. He's fully God and he's fully man. Like John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and then it walked around. It dwelt among us. You could touch it. These verses are his eyewitness testimony, and he's clear. I heard him. I touched him. I saw him, and the guy that I saw and heard and touched wasn't just a guy. He was God. He is God. He's from the beginning. He's from ancient of days. He's from eternity. He's eternal life. This is the first point that we can't over-preach, You can't over-preach this reality, and especially in our day and age. The Bible says that the wheat and the tares will grow together until the final harvest when God decides to separate them. And that's one reason that we always preach like there's believers in the room to be strengthened and loved, and we also preach like there are unbelievers in the room. That's why we can't over-preach that Christ Jesus is God. He's God. Jesus is not our buddy or our butler or our hobby. He's not part of your lifestyle brand and he's not, he's not your life coach. He's God all the way up and all the way down and from eternity past God. You and me and Joe Biden are not in charge. Christ is. He's Lord. There are millions of options in our lives for idolatry, for idols, for things that we worship in our lives, but there is one God. There's no end to the gurus and the teachers and the different philosophies, but there is one God. Every single person in this room is living with some kind of framework of what we think works for us for whatever reason. We all have ideas and habits and preferences, and we kind of shop around for something 
something new whenever those get out of date or whenever they expire and they don't do it for us anymore. Like news media and like our social media, we hop around from trendy idea to trendy idea to trendy idea and then we change whenever that one gets exposed or gets old. We get embarrassed of what we posted on Facebook five years ago or, or maybe five minutes ago. Much of life is lived existing to consume and promote shallow things and fleeting winds of whatever people are talking about at the time. And Jesus isn't one of those. Jesus isn't fashionable. He isn't one among other options. He's God. He's God. And that's what we're doing here. We aren't here to stroke egos or to build platforms or even so that we can feel like we belong somewhere. We're here because Jesus, when he walked on the earth, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we're here because we believe him. We believe him. Verses there are verse one travels from this lofty transcendence all the way to human per, uh, sense, sense perception. John says, we heard and we saw and we touched the eternal life made manifest. And what we've seen, we testify and we proclaim to you so that you can have fellowship. And this is the fellowship that John shares. And this is the fellowship that all believers share with the Father and the Son. Which leads me to my second point. We share fellowship with the triune God. God exists in fellowship with himself, first of all. God from all eternity existed in fellowship with himself. The Father delighting in the Son, the Son delighting in the Father, and the Spirit kind of radiating this affection between them. Like Pastor John Piper once said, before you and I or this universe ever came on the scene, there was God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and he was happy in himself. The Trinity exists in relationship with one another, and that's the communion, that's the fellowship, that's the relationship that the apostle is eager for us to experience vertically and demonstrate horizontally. Because of the gospel, we are brought to the Father, Father through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's what's happening. Jesus says it crystal clear. This eternal life this is eternal life, that we may know you, the Father, and Jesus Christ, whom the Father has sent. Again, John Stott says, the substance of the apostolic proclamation was the historical manifestation of the eternal. Its purpose was and is a fellowship with one another, which is based on fellowship with the Father and the Son, in which issues fullness of joy. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse six says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and that you may live. Loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength is what life's about. Fellowship with God isn't part of your life. It is life. 
Fellowship with God isn't a detail to your religious doctrine. It is your life. Fellowship with the triune God isn't an accent piece to your living room. It's the whole house. Fellowship with God isn't a complement to your identity. It's the DNA of who you are. Fellowship with God isn't incidental. It isn't decoration. It isn't an amenity. Fellowship with God is at the burning, white, hot center of the gospel. You don't, you don't need me, but you do need fellowship with the living God. You can't figure out everything in your life, but you can give away your life to gain it. You aren't going to find the answers to all your deepest questions or burdens or pains. And the truth is that God might not give those to you. Because God doesn't offer you an instruction manual to your life. He says it's okay to lose your life because if you have him, you have life. And he says, come to me, everybody who's thirsty. You don't need any money, but you do need me. Drink from this fountain, live in these streams, walk in this light, the light of God's burning bright sun, Jesus Christ. The life that we want, the life that we need, the life that we were made for is the life that was with the Father. The life of God is the fellowship that we have offered to us through the circumcision of our hearts through Christ. Through Christ, your guilt is removed. Through Christ, your sins are forgiven. Through Christ, your burdens are lifted. And through Christ, you are welcomed and gathered into the very life of the living God. That's the foundation of all Christian fellowship. That's the foundation of all Christian fellowship. That's the grounding of all of our community. That's what you need and I need, and it's what we share as the people of God. It's what I have and you have, and it's why we'll never be strangers, and why you'll always be closer to a Christian on the other side of the globe than you are with a coworker who doesn't know Jesus. And this brings me to my third point. <coughs> We share, we share fellowship with one another. We share fellowship with one another. I want to say three things about this point. Fellowship with one another is rooted in fellowship with God. Fellowship is a worthy goal and fellowship isn't optional. So first, the fellowship mentioned here in our text, in fact, the fellowship that's the goal of the gospel proclamation in this part of the Bible, isn't generic or baseless or floating in the air without a fixed reference point. The fellowship that Christians share isn't the same thing as our online community or our golfing buddies or our Instagram followers. It has a source. It has a beginning. It has a fountainhead. The communion of the Trinity and our communion with God is the fountainhead of all Christian community. Christian fellowship is not all-inclusive and general and non-specific. We share something as Christians that is very exclusive and unique and specific. And God says, welcome all. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. 
We share as Christians communion with Christ, union with Christ, and fellowship with the Godhead, the only God. Idolatry around false gods or false ideas is not Christian community. Groups oriented around hobbies or groups organized around common goals or common preferences are not Christian community. What we share is communion with God and communion with eternal life. And the communion is in communion in the light. What we share is participation in the love of God and the mission of God. True Christian fellowship is rooted in God himself. Second, this fellowship is shown to be a worthy pursuit. Fellowship with God and fellowship with one another, with with other believers, is a good and necessary thing, a necessary pursuit for you. So much so that we're warned elsewhere in the scriptures that we not forsake the gathering, that we not isolate ourselves from other Christians, other brothers and sisters. This is one of the reasons that I'm really excited to be in this letter as a church. I want to be the kind of man and I want this to be the kind of church that practices true Christian communion, true Christian communion with God and communion with other believers. And John is helpful for us as we labor to understand what that looks like. It's a worthy endeavor to enter into honest, connected relationships with other people where they are invited to see you on your bad days, where they're invited to see you without a filter. It's worth it to bring people into your life, but then hand them the permission to speak about what they see and what they hear. Because here's the deal, you don't, you don't need to be deceived by somebody else to make mistakes. We do a great job of doing that ourselves. The Bible says that we deceive ourselves. When, when we hear and fail to put what we hear into action, we are deceiving ourselves. Somewhere along the way, we talk ourselves out of action. We justify our sin, we ignore our sin, and we pretend that everything's okay when it is not okay. We walk around giving each other advice that we don't even intend to follow ourselves. And I'm not making things up. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 7. We walk around instructing others and correcting other people when we're guilty at that very moment of worse things. I'm convicted and convinced under the weight of the grace of God that I don't want to do that. I don't want, I don't want to play church. And this is why I love the letters of John. He helps us become free from self-deception, from playing a role. He helps us be honest about our sin, be honest about our weakness, be honest about our immaturity. Immaturity isn't anything to be embarrassed of, but it can be inappropriate. Inappropriate. Paul says, Paul says that when he became a man, he put away childish things, and we should do the same. And guess what? We need help recognizing what those things are in our lives. That's why we want to live and love people here, fully expecting for sin to be called out by other people. For areas of weakness or areas of neglect where we are inappropriately immature, we want that to be identified and addressed in our lives. 
This is what Christian community offers. It offers the freedom that comes from having your communion with God. This is how it functions. This is how it works. If we want something that's healthy, Christian community offers freedom by having your communion with the triune God, which is way more important than your communion with me. Your communion with the living God of the universe, so weighty and full and constant that it, it hits like glorious weight in your life and displaces your fear of me or the person next to you. Your communion with God gives you the freedom to engage other people with honesty because you already have the person that you care most about what they think like lined up. It's functioning rightly. That's what Christian community offers us. The Christian community should be a place where we can name the spiritual spinach in our teeth and that's a worthy goal. It's a worthy goal and it isn't optional, which is my third point. Christians are not allowed to do this alone. There's no concept of the isolated me and my Bible kind of Christian in the New Testament. The family of God is a family. And we will bump up against each other and offend each other and disappoint each other. And that's expected, but opting out is forbidden. We're meant to be in communion with other believers. We're instructed throughout the Bible. We are instructed in countless ways about how we are to treat others and how we are to act towards others. And that presupposes that there are others. Right? There are others in the first place. Fellowship and communion and living lives in the light of the biblical expectation requires other people in our lives who are close enough to see when we have something in our teeth. Let me give, let me give two gentle exhortations here. I want to ask, do you invite other people to give you observations about what they see in your life? Do you invite other people's assessment what, what they see in your life, what they see in your marriage, what they see, what they see in your parenting. Do we invite other people and do we take the risk to give feedback to other people in an effort to love them? And I say that, man, I say that fully aware that I'm a guy standing in front of a room full of people who all have feedback for me. I'm sure. But truly, are there friends in your life that you love enough to offend? That you love enough to wound? Nowadays, we tend to think that all wounds are bad, but Proverbs doesn't say that. Proverbs says that blows from an enemy are more valuable than, or blows from a friend are more valuable than kisses from an enemy. Literally, are we willing to hurt our friends' feelings because we love them? And do we invite them to do that for us? Do we invite that kind of space, those kinds of relationships, that kind of honesty, that kind of grace? And that only functions when our communion, our communion with God sinks down to the bottom, when it's the thing that orients the ship so we can encounter those kinds of hard conversations and it doesn't throw us off course because the rudder is set. In order to be people who can do that, you need confidence in your own communion with God first. 
If you're his, then you don't need to be afraid of anything else. That's how the fear of God works. When you aim the fear of God towards the triune God, when you live in that way under the fear of the Lord, other scary things aren't as scary. It displaces and right sizes every other fear in your life. This is why communion with God must be the fountain and the foundation of our communion with one another. This is the kind of fellowship with God that I'm after. I want communion with God to overshadow every other threat and fear in my life, both real and imagined. That's the freedom I'm after, the freedom I'm laboring for and praying for for this church. I'm asking that God accomplishes that in this place by the power of his spirit. And this brings me to my final point. This reality is what offers us true joy, true joy. The author, John, is intensely pastoral in these letters, and he's connecting his own joy with the joy of his readers here. And as Christians, we do this with one another. My joy is connected and concerned with your joy. But there are, there's a specific reality here that can't be denied or overlooked. You see, as believers, we know where joy is found. Joy, true joy, like everything else in the scriptures, isn't relative. It isn't primarily subjective. You see, John is not burdened for superficial happiness or fleeting enjoyment or thin, paper-thin amusement for himself or for these people. He's zealous for his own joy and he's zealous for their joy. And joy in this text is not nebulous. It isn't fuzzy or foggy. You can't make joy mean whatever you want it to mean. And the rest of this letter makes it really clear what John is talking about. He's talking about joy in the light. Okay, joy in fellowship with God and in fellowship with other Christians in the light. He's talking about obedience from the heart and confessing sin. We live in a day that's preaching a very different message. When people tell you that you have to disobey God in order to be happy. But you can't be in open and rebellious in open rebellion and disobedience to God and be happy, at least not like John's talking about. The essence of this joy, the essence of true Christian joy is fellowship, fellowship with God and then fellowship with one another. And sin breaks fellowship with God. Sin breaks fellowship with other people. You can't embrace sin and embrace fellowship with God at the same time. You can't pursue sin and pursue joy at the same time. Let me be super clear. You can't sow seeds of sin and disobedience and expect to reap a harvest of joy. If you plant thorns, you'll get thorns. And the only way to change that is to start planting something else Instead, we can't simply hear and refuse to act and then complain when joy is elusive, when joy is missing from the equation. 
This is why I'm fighting for us to exhort and rebuke and comfort and give feedback and love one another, even take risks to do that well. It's because I'm zealous for your joy, like John is, for your real joy, your lasting joy, and not the fleeting pleasures of sin, like the scripture calls them, the fleeting pleasures of Egypt. I don't have in my head, I don't have my head in the sand. I'm, I'm fully aware that all of us are bombarded with enticements to find our joy and our happiness and our satisfaction in a million different things every single day that we wake up and go to bed. The pleasures of Egypt are tossed in our direction all the time. And they're the pleasures that the devil offers you so that you will put chains back on. Hebrews 11 says that by faith, Moses, when he was grown, he refused to call the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter because he was choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He'd rather be, he'd rather be associated with the people of God and suffer for it than to get the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ, that's the reproach of the faith in Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. That's the deal. People in your life will tell you that you can't be happy unless you cheat on your wife. People in your life will tell you that you cannot be happy if you stay married to your husband. People in your life will tell you that you will not be happy unless you claw your way to the top or you cheat or lie or, or lie or steal or you'll never be happy unless you find somebody to marry or you'll never be happy unless you give into and embrace your same-sex attractions or you'll never be happy unless you get divorced or you abandon the faith or you give up because it's too hard. The message is the same and it's everywhere. If you really want to be happy, take the shortcut. Take the candy that the devil's selling. But sin severs fellowship. Fellowship with God and fellowship with other people. You can't have the kind of joy that John is talking about unless you abandon sin and receive Christ. When Jesus was still walking on the earth, he prayed this way. He said, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's what Jesus was praying as he approached the cross. And, and for the joy set in front of him, he endured the cross, the bloody cross. Friends, hear this in your heart of hearts. The bloody cross of Christ is the price of our joy. It doesn't just happen 
any other way. You can't have sin and joy because joy only comes when sin is forgiven and it loses its power. And that only happens because Jesus's flesh was torn into ribbons and those wounds gush with blood. And the blood of Jesus acts like currency. It acts like money. It buys freedom from sin for you. And it's the only thing in the world that can buy you real and true and lasting joy because only Jesus' blood can purchase for you fellowship with God. Jesus' skin was ripped open and John, our author, is saying, I saw him, I heard what he said, and I touched that skin. I know what I'm talking about. Without Christ, whatever joy you think you have is fleeting. Sin promises pleasure, but it brings chains. It brings chains. And eventually, those chains are pulled around your neck and they will strangle you. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in my Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You don't have to pretend here. You don't have to posture or fake it till you make it. You don't have to do that here. And if you choose to do that, if you commit to those kind of strategies for your life, if you commit to hiding the real you in the dark or your sins in the dark, if you avoid and hide correction or rebuke or exhortation in your life, you will forfeit real Christian communion and true Christian fellowship. You will miss it. And with it, you will miss supernatural, otherworldly joy. The kind of joy that even motivated Jesus to endure the torture of his own death on the cross. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I want this kind of joy. I don't want to finagle things. I don't want to resituate things. I don't want to manage my weaknesses and immaturities and sins. I want the freedom to face them and grow and change and be transformed by the power of the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want that for us. I want the kind of joy that we get in true Christian fellowship to be ever increasing in this place. I believe that that road is full of difficulties. So would you give us the grace to walk faithfully forward over and over and over and over again. And when we get knocked down, get back up and help others get back up and keep walking down that direction to see our fellowship deepen, our fellowship with you first deepen, our fellowship with one another deepen, and that we would reap a harvest of that kind of joy. Would you do that? I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.